Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A note to our listeners, since the recording of this episode, Shamima Begum's baby has tragically died. This is why it isn't discussed in the following conversation. to episode 89 of The Hilo, the weekly current affairs and pop culture podcast brought to you by journalists Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. Increasingly, I love the way you say pop culture. <laughs> Thank you to everyone who came to our live record at Pandora, the place, not the person, in partnership with Overcome to support Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month. It was such a jolly crowd, wasn't it? You're already enjoying, I can tell, but my computer's off sick. Oh, I'm loving it. I can see you right... I can look right in your eyes. I normally have a gigantic... Possibly the thing I love most in the world, a gigantic iMac computer, and it has gone to hospital, so... And now that I'm thinking about it, because I sit across you from a desk, it is like I've gone into Nat West or something, and I've asked <laughs> I've to extend my overdraft. I've got a very small laptop in front of me. <laughs> we are recording this a week early because of our very special guest, and as you can hear, I'm lurgied up to the hilt like Dolly was last week. I'm sorry about that. Yeah, I wonder where that came from. I shouldn't have snogged you. <laughs> so I'll swerve any current affairs updates, what with those being woefully out of date by the time this is published and instead i implore you to visit courtney cox's new ish instagram page Fun. where she has recreated using a piece of furniture and her own friends my favorite ever friends moment ross with the sofa pivot okay pivot <laughs> that's so helpful Dan. thank you that's good pivoting she's really funny courtney cox Buzzfeed all over her Instagram. And I definitely won't talk about the Ocado Ferrari middle class nightmare in I'm which. S- I'm so upset about this. In which the home food delivery service has been bought by MS for 750 million, meaning that you will no longer be able to get Waitrose products delivered to your door. Dolly, you've been really hyping me up about this, and you don't even order Ocado. First of all, I'd like to say the first thing when I read that news story, and it was breaking news, the first thing I thought was, I wonder who's bought the film rights for this story. I was swallowing, so my incredulity could not be fully conveyed in audio version. But I want to make a sort of lo-fi British indie comedy about it. But there are high British indie comedy. But there are high stakes. Um, Actually, the reason I'm so upset is, fortuitously, I just did my first Ocado shop last week, and it's bloody brilliant. Let me recommend it to oh all God, of you. This is when this is you capturing the zeitgeist three years too late again. It's and actually, it was cheaper than my Sano's weekly shop. Sano's, you're going to start telling us about Monzo next. Now it's this really great credit card that you can like see how much we're spending. But isn't that surprising that I bought? I think I actually bought more food for less money. Yeah, yeah. All the breaking news stories here. Yeah, I, I am actually quite upset about it. But why? M&S food is delicioso. Love M&S food. We've talked extensively about how much we like M&S food. But it's, for me, it's not your one-stop shop for a domestic, weekly fill-your-fridge. Only because you haven't had the opportunity. 
But I just don't, I think M&S, here's what it's good for, your tights, your multi-packs of knickers, your best ever prawn sandwiches, your dips, your meze, your hummus, maybe a little pastry in the morning. It's not your place for bog roll and milk. What's with the year? <laughs> I don't know, it's on a bit of a roll. Anyway, I've got to find a way to make my peace with it because it is shape though there's there's i've been checking the story and it's it's full steam ahead well, not till know- 2020 though oh okay mm-hmm. well if i know you a you might be you might be dead by then i mean we hope not but you never know it's best not to get ahead that did go through my head actually and also if i know you you will have replaced this devastation with a new one within three days <laughs> which i'll learn about via twitter speaking of i took to twitter my favorite verb to see what the people of the internet were saying and well dolly it seems to just be us who gives a fig the only recent chagrin i could find was linda who tweeted at Ocado, i'm doing my online shopping and i am astonished to find that you no longer stock any form of oval team. Is this a permanent change? And if so, why? <laughs> and if so, why? It's probably because the bit. only person that drinks oval team <laughs> is my mother. I'm also really confused because all we ever read about is that MS is constantly posting losses for each quarter. So where are they getting 750 million to buy Okado? It's my French friend, calls it. I don't know. Maybe they're like me, always complaining about how I'll never buy a house. And yet, there we are, every week, another delivery from Zara. (laughs) (laughs) I've got a nice new survey nugget for you this week. Research has discovered that almost three quarters of Brits think that social media is the leading cause of arguments in a relationship. With over two thirds believing that it causes more people to cheat. And as many as two in five say that they worry about their partner cheating. As a result, one in ten have admitted they look through their partner's phones without their consent. And my own finding is 100% of the use of the word Brit (laughs) is only ever used in these press releases. That was my finding. What do you make of this? I think that um, they should just swap out the word social media for um, insecurity. Because all social media does is parlay your insecurities That's in a relationship. Wise, panda. Well, it's just a conduit. Social media is not a thing. It's not like I'm looking at a painting of a cat. You know, that's probably not the thing. It's not a cat. It's not, it's not like a, a tangible thing. So it's just another medium that's a painting of a cat, aren't there? I've never noticed that painting of a cat. Oh, how spectacularly unobservant you are. I know, it's a lovely painting. Um, so yes, it's not a tangible thing. I Yes, I know what you mean. Have you ever looked at your partner's text messages? Do you know, I did when I was younger, only me because too. I had a series of boyfriends who cheated on me. So I had every right to believe that I had, you know, I should be searching for evidence, even though I shouldn't have been. But I, not since my, like, mid-twenties, I don't think I have. No, have me Have you ever done it with Ollie? I think I've looked at his text before... To, to get a conclusive answer of something. So are they coming for dinner? Yeah, you think they think they're coming. So then I'm like, I'm just going to see if they're coming or not. Yeah, but that's because he's that's because he's like me and he's just wishy washy. Um, that's not no, because I you wouldn't... suspect him of anything. No, God, it, there's nothing to be fat. It's so boring. I think he could be cheating on you with like Buzzfeed memes. <laughs> I think <laughs> definitely he, he could be having an affair with a meme. He's definitely having an affair with Buzzfeed memes. Any juicy morsels in the mailbag this week, Donnie? We had lots of positive responses. To to Emma Thompson's resignation letter. A listener said, I think the question The Telegraph asks about forgiveness in the Me Too age is a fascinating one. You should watch Louis Theroux's brand new documentary, which sensitively and challengingly explores consent in US colleges. As always, he takes the difficult route in this documentary and challenges how we respond to these kinds of cases and the thorny grey areas that surround them. 
the thorny subject of Joe Rogan <laughs> reared its head once again. Do you feel safe and comfortable? Charlie, let's talk about Joe Rogan. You're not going to be triggered. I think CJ wrote this. It's quite <laughs> Actually, eloquent. And I think CJ did write this. Oh, my God. Look, he's smart. You did write this email, didn't you? No. Did you write into the Hilo show at gmail.com about Joe Rogan? No, all my grievances have been face-to-face um, and via Twitter. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Honestly, so this man. was from a male listener, perhaps sitting right next to me. The ideas that Joe Rogan promotes across his show tend to revolve around learning, self-improvement and self-care. Search Joe Rogan Motivation into YouTube for the key themes. He is also one of the early pioneers of the business of podcasting. And there are a number of successful podcasters who were encouraged to start because of him, not least Russell Brand. In terms of his popularity, I challenge the idea that he doesn't have much of a name here and his success lives across the Atlantic. Sat on the train home yesterday, there was a bloke to my right watching Rogan on YouTube and on my left was one listening to Rogan on the podcast app. I have had entire casual office friendships that revolve around swapping good Rogan episodes with each other and not much else. Most of his listeners are men, and it is the underlying issues with the modern male condition that send them his way. The idea that sometimes you can be untethered to society, unsuccessful by modern standards, and unsure on how to manifest your masculinity in a positive way is a reality he looks to confront often. It wouldn't surprise me to find the cohort of males in the 20 to 30 year old bracket are his most loyal fans. He isn't perfect by any means, but I feel compelled to defend him in the same way I would you both if someone described you both as Bloody Dolly and Pandora. Very, very very fair point. And a really interesting soliloquy on the struggles facing modern manhood. I feel quite humbled by your longer letter. Sorry and thank you. I'm also astounded by Joe Rogan's output. Two hours of podcasting minimum every single day. He's on episode 1,200 and something. Maybe women have a huge source of podcasts of women kind of speaking expressively and intimately about you know their anxieties well, i mean we're recording the high note right now exactly we? like maybe i hadn't thought about what kind of special place it may occupy for men so i am sorry for judging too quickly on joe rogue i've got one word for you what? as well karma i know i know <laughs> what have you been enjoying this week i was almost felled by a one-year-old's birthday party i don't think I've ever been so exhausted in my life trying to sort of coordinate the many different sizes of humans. Well, the good thing is she will remember it forever. (laughs) (laughs) My parents missed my first birthday. They went on holiday. It was just me with none of my family. But you don't remember it, though. I see the pictures and I I remember (laughs) the sadness. My mum is, like, completely um, unrepentant. It looked like a great party. That cake your mum made looked lovely. Oh, the cake was amazing. And then I wheeled it over to my sisters. No, I took the whole thing over to my sisters. I know, I didn't really eat any, so I'm actually now wishing I'd kept a tear for myself. Yeah, so do I. Mine's been my wedding cake. Never tasted my wedding cake. Really? Yeah. Oh, I had a right... It was all gone. I had a right... Oh, that's because of me. (laughs) Right good old girl on your wedding cake. You took a tear of that home with you in your pan bag. Yeah, stuck it in the clutch bag. (laughs) And Fleabag is back! I haven't watched it yet. I'm so excited. I genuinely thought you'd be logging on at like 1am. Logging on? Going on to iPlayer at like 1am. I I know, it was annoying because I was literally in bed for 48 hours sick, but it wasn't out It wasn't out yet. No. No, so I actually hoped... Well, I'm glad they didn't because otherwise I'd have felt even more rotten today. But I thought they might have put all of it on iPlayer. You know how they do that? Like the Netflix thing. And they did that with Killing Eve, I think, as well, actually. No, they didn't. Sure. No, I don't think they did. I think only Netflix and Amazon did. did. Oh, did they? Yes. 
They did. I watched it all in one go. I like the delayed gratification and that and the way it kind of creates this no, conversation I, I between episodes. I agree. And it was actually a relief that I could only watch one because it meant I didn't stay up on it. Anyway, it's back. It's had incredible reviews. I don't want to give anything away, but um, what I think I can say is that there's a sexy priest... Um, I've already read an interview with him. He's played some amazing roles. Um, I read an interview with him in The Guardian. So there's a sexy priest and it starts with a dinner at which um, Olivia Colman and Fleabag's dad have announced that they're getting married. So they have the priest there. And there's this sort of, you know, awkward dinner in a restaurant picking up sort of a year after where the last series left off. And it's filled... I won't give away the main... There's this main bit where you think oh my god, like, it's back. So won't give that away, but there are lots of very funny lines where at one point, um, Olivia Coleman, you know, dreadful stepmother is saying, you in touch with any of your family? And he says, no, I'm not in touch with my brother. And she says, oh, sad, that's so dreadfully sad, so sad. And he says, well, he's a paedophile. And there's this kind of silence and he's like, I'm aware of the irony. <laughs> and it's just, it, it's just, inc- it's just brilliant. It's brilliant. And it's really, it's, you know, it's devastatingly hilarious and hilariously devastating in the same way it always was. And really not unlike the, all the Julia Davis television mm. I've been watching, except it's less odd. It's more middle-class satirical banality, but you're going to absolutely can't wait. Love it. I also um, enjoyed a new YA novel by Juno Dawson, a previous guest on the Hilo, called Meat Market, following the trajectory of a 16-year-old model, Jana Novak, and it's already been bought for TV. I found this really reflective of the industry, actually, both what I've experienced as a fashion writer over the last sort of seven years and what I've been told by models or stylists or agents. It's very much a work of fiction, but there's all sorts of narratives that are happening Um, in the fashion industry right now whether or not it's models being under pressure to lose weight or models being put in kind of sexually inappropriate scenarios and I love what Juno and Charlie Howard and Holly Bourne are doing for the YA scene at the moment Mm. I think they're producing really brilliant engaging thoughtful novels and non-fiction and whilst Twilight and Hunger Games are brilliant engrossing trilogies they're taking really contemporary themes and issues like money eating disorders sex emotions um parenting and I really felt the lack of these when I was growing up I loved Judy Bloom and Jacqueline Wilson as a preteen, but then I was on to Jilly Cooper at the age of 12 and I wouldn't say that's hugely focused on contemporary themes and I just think it's brilliant now that as a teenager you know we are much better at educating our teens now just last week or the week before we were talking about how the um national curriculum is going to include like a much wider and more inclusive scope for sex education mm. um so people are much more kind of educated and aware of the issues that we need to talk to teenagers about but I think sometimes talking to teenagers and I certainly remember this as a caregiver they just don't want to talk to you it's like awkward it's uncomfortable they just want to get away and I think it's great that there are really engrossing narratives that have kind of quite strong messages at play under it anyway really easy to read book as is often the case with YA fiction you can read it as an adult and I still think it's interesting yeah so I gobbled that up over several bath times and very much enjoyed it Dolly what about you you took a very much deserved sick bed 48 hours do you feel at all replenished after that I hope you changed your seat, I did. seats after all that eating in bed I did how did you know because I know you 
Literally. All of that takeaway through the window. (laughs) (laughs) I got out of my sick bed for a full hour and a half because um, Indra and I had booked tickets months and months and months ago to see a documentary called The Ponds, which is a beautiful film made by Patrick McLennan and Samuel Smith about three swimming ponds, which for anyone who doesn't know are three very beautiful freshwater swimming ponds on Hampstead Heath that were dug as reservoirs in the 16 and 1700s and have been used for bathing um, since as far back as Victorian times, I think. Uh, There's a pond just for men, one for women, and one mixed one which opens in the summer. Have you ever been? No, I still haven't, and I can't believe that. I know so many of my friends are obsessed with them, I don't know how I've never been. The men and women's ponds are open all year round, and as the documentary follows stories of different swimmers, you see that people do swim there all year round. In the winter segment of the documentary, there's the most incredible footage of swimmers at the men's pond trudging through the snow in their trunks and speedos and jumping into the water that has sheets of ice on parts of its surface. Are these the same swimming ponds that my friend Lou wrote about for The New Yorker? Yes. Ah, yeah, exactly. Okay, got it. This documentary was something I'd been looking forward to seeing for months as for the last five years I've swum in the ladies' pond. Although, full disclosure, the coldest I've ever swum in, I normally only swim up to mid-October and then I resume again in May. Although I did do a swim once with the journalist Stacey Buchanan in early November and it nearly killed me. Um, But a lot of the very kind of tough birds that I've met in the changing rooms and seen on this very brilliant documentary, I think would call me a fair-weathered swimmer. I used to live 10 minutes walk from the ladies' pond, from my bed to the pond, which was such a luxury. And me and my flatmates would go there in the summer after work. And it truly is such a special place. It's incredibly serene and peaceful. It's the only place where you can swim where little baby ducklings will come up to you as you're doing your circuits. It's known as being a place of healing, which they go into on the documentary through lots of different stories um, of the kind of regular swimmers. They speak to a woman who's had the most appalling experiences with cancer, both with her loved ones and herself. And she talks about how swimming in the pond after a double mastectomy acted as a sort of therapy. There's another lovely group of women who talk about how important their swim at the pond has become. They do a regular swim together since they have kind of grown older together and faced various challenges in life. Obviously, I've not experienced anything anywhere near as that traumatic, but for me, it's a very unique place. As I went there every morning after I had a very upsetting breakup a few years ago, and I truly, when I look back on that time of sort of convalescence from that breakup, I do think it really helped me recover. And also, I've written about this as someone who has suffered from terrible body image issues in the past, truly one of the best forms of recovery and therapy that I ever did was go to the ladies' pond regularly and stand in the changing room where everyone gets naked and see just how many forms and shapes the human body can take. It was like... It was like a mental health exercise for me the first time I went. And to see these total chicks of all ages who just braved sometimes Arctic waters just rock out in the nude, not giving a (laughs) shit what anyone thinks of them, it just had such a positive effect on how I view my body and all the things that it can do. And every time that I'm there now, probably because I'm a little bit older, I think about you know, maybe bringing a daughter there one day or bringing my goddaughters there or taking Zadie there, I thought, because she loves swimming so much. I'll yes. have to take her to the ladies' pond one day. And what what an encouraging and positive 
environment that would be for a young girl. The film really captures the magic of the ponds and how unique they are, as well as the community that go there. The cinematography is stunning, uh, with incredible drone footage over the heath, and also some wonderful archive footage of men and women swimming there as far back as the First World War. I loved it, as you can probably tell by my long soliloquy. It reminded <laughs> me of how lucky I am to live in this city, where some of its most special offerings are free to all to access. So I would highly recommend seeing that. And I think that's on at very selected cinemas now. I also discovered this week the story of Lou Reed and Rachel. I saw Our Lady J, who is a consultant and I think writer on the Transparent team and a trans woman, do a post on Instagram in tribute to Lou Reed as a man who loved trans women, along with a photo of his longtime trans girlfriend, Rachel. I love Lou Reed's music and knew that he was inspired by the queer scene of New York in the 60s and 70s. And I knew that he'd written about trans women uh, that he'd met on the scene at the time. Take a Walk on the Wild Side is a great example of this. And incidentally, not to bring the tone down, also my chosen funeral song. Um, <laughs> but I didn't know that he'd had a full relationship with a trans woman. I then went and did some digging around online. And while there's very little information about Rachel, there is a podcast episode called Whatever Happened to Rachel from a podcast series called One from the Vaults, which is a series about trans history hosted by Morgan M. Page. In the episode, she talks about how Rachel and Lou met, their passionate and it sounds somewhat turbulent relationship, how she inspired some of his best work, including apparently the title song from the album Coney Island Baby, and uh, how they eventually and why they eventually broke up. And it's also a kind of wider look at the role of the trans woman as a muse and how sad it is that it took some time after Rachel was with Lou Reed for trans women to be allowed to take the narrative of, of their experiences themselves and being given space to, to express it and talk about it themselves. And how there was also a, a speculation, a kind of cynical speculation, that Lou Reed's relationship with Rachel boosted this kind of underground bisexual counterculture glam rock persona that he was pushing at the time. Others say that it was a, a, a kind of very intense, true love story. Sadly, no one has been able to trace Rachel since the early 90s, so we can't hear her side of the story now. But this episode I found to be a very well-told story, a very clear story, um, with the scant information that the presenter had about a woman who I think, in the kind of oral history of pop culture, has up until now been kind of kept in the dark. I loved Three Identical Strangers, which is a fascinating documentary that's currently available to watch on 4OD. Do I sound like a grandpa saying 4OD? I think it's called More 4 now, isn't it? Is it? I thought it was 4OD. I actually don't know. 4OD. There we go. None of us know. More 4? Is it More 4? More 4 is a channel in its own right. You sound more of a grandpa for that. The 4 catch-up? Actually, I've got... Actually, this could determine if you're a grandpa. What channel do you think Home and Away is on now? Five. Grandpa. Oh, what is it? Five Star. Is Five Star a channel? Sure is. We can't, we can't all have Sky packages, Pandora. <laughs> the way you use that as a like proof of my privilege. So many like others. So on, <laughs> on the full catch-up, 
platform. Um, I watched this documentary, which is about how three identical twins were separated at birth by an adoption agency with none of the children or the respective parents who adopted them aware that they were one of three identical triplets and the extraordinary story of how they found each other. One of the boys went to college in the Catskills as he was in his late teens um, and on his first day everyone greeted him like an old friend with girls coming up to him and kissing him and saying, so good to have you back. And it turns out that his brother had been at that college but had left the year before. One of the friends of that brother rang the brother and said, your lookalike is here. The two of them spoke on the phone, realised they were born on the same day and both adopted. It then ran as a news story and then another boy spotted himself through the picture of both of them on the news and the triplets were reunited. And I'd never heard of this story before, but they became this sort of celebrity set of triplets in the 80s and 90s. They even had a cameo in Desperately Seeking Susan, <laughs> where the three of them are just all kind of standing it's up against the wall. It's quite unlike you to watch a documentary like that. That's normally my fair. I know. You will really, really like it. There were some really weird parallels when they found each other. They all had adopted older sisters aged 21. They all smoked the same brand of cigarettes. They all had done boxing as teenagers. And for the first four 40 minutes of the documentary it is just a quite joyful story serendipitous story about how they found each other and how their lives changed when they met they all moved into a flat together in new york they were inseparable they opened a restaurant together and then there are a couple the tone of the documentary really changes in the second half and there are a couple of really dark twists that are explored um in a really uh thorough um well-rounded way it's completely compelling um telling of in a story that is in many ways a total tragedy and it's a really really deft examination of the nature versus nurture debate i also love faithful the marianne faithful story i watched this on bbc4 it's a documentary made by sandrine bonaire about the singer songwriter and icon of the 60s and my personal icon marianne faithful I love Marianne Faithful. I'm fascinated by her story, but of what she represented in the 60s, how she was an early example of slut shaming at the hand of the British tabloids, and the incredibly frustrating double standard uh, of how she was treated and how her male counterparts, the Rolling Stones, were treated, and what what the kind of damage to her reputation by dint of being associated with them uh, did for the rest of her life. Whereas, you know, those are some of the richest men in Britain who are still filling out stadiums. She's also just a deeply fascinating person. She had this very eccentric Austrian aristocratic background. She's very philosophical. She was and is seemingly completely uninterested in the kind of constructs of correctness and rules, which I find so interesting as a former convent girl with that kind of aristocratic background. And she's also famously quite difficult. Lynn Barber's interview with her is one of the most eviscerating interviews I've ever read. I think I've read that. Which is very, very funny. Uh, and the documentary maker did capture that. She's very truculent at times. She switches her charm on and off very quickly, which is something that really infuriated Lynn Barber in that interview. But she also explores what a complicated person she is. Uh, it's a really, really good documentary. I like that they focused on her music. I like that they didn't focus on her as a kind of trinket of the Rolling Stones. But one thing I would say is it's only an hour, and this is a woman who's lived 
a thousand lives. So having read her memoir, I could have watched another two hours, but it was still a very, very enjoyable documentary. I listened to two brilliant episodes of Fresh Air this week, one of which is called Why Older Women Are Often the Happiest Demographic in America, which is an interview with Terry Gross and Mary Pfeiffer, who's written... She's the woman that wrote the article in the New York Times that I wanted oh, you to read. Oh, yeah. She is okay, a clinical psychologist who wrote The Joy of Being in Your 70s. Oh, so this is an interview where she's talking about those themes. It's about her new book, Women Rowing North. That piece must be promo then for that book as well. Yeah. Oh, it sounds like we both need to read the book if we're both really enjoying her content. Yeah, I'll read that New York Times piece as well. It was so interesting. And she said, obviously, as you know, I'm really fascinated by ageing and the way that we treat the elderly and she was talking about the fact that now that we have such longer life expectancies and when you retire you still have an entire third act of your life left she was like we have to face that elderly people are not going to play bridge for 30 years (laughs) and she said this other thing that you would love where she said that um, this, this, the research that she's done shows that women get happier and happier as the older they get which I just found so lovely and encouraging and galvanizing and she said that one of the things that makes a woman happy into old age is the the quality of her friendships particularly her female friendships and mary pfeiffer said i call my female friendships my mental health insurance yeah isn't that lovely love that and then the incredible fresh air episode that i listened to which is going to go down as a stone cold classic for me is <laughs> It's called Remembering Singing in the Rain co-director Stanley Donan. So that's why I first listened to it, because I love Singing in the Rain. And it's uh, he directed a lot of those kind of musicals that I love, kind of mid-last century musicals. And he talks about kind of working with Frank Sinatra and Gene Kelly and Fred Astaire. Um, so I just love listening to that. There's a really interesting bit where Terry Gross says to him, what's the most difficult thing about directing a musical? And he said it's getting characters to go from dialogue to singing or singing to dialogue. And he said, because if it feels like there's too much of a clunky gear change, then it just makes an audience feel really uncomfortable and they laugh. So he talks about like how that's the biggest challenge when you're, when you're writing those segues. And then he points out a few things that he does, a few techniques that he does to avoid that, which you will now notice every time you watch a musical. But then the amazing thing about Fresh Air, as everyone who listens to this podcast probably knows, because whenever I recommend Fresh Air, Americans tell me it's like it's like an American recommending Radio 4. <laughs> it's so... Will you do that as well? <laughs> um, but the thing that's great about it is that it's like a package show. So it's always got at least two, normally three, really interesting segments. So I just carried on listening while I was cooking. After are we the... a package show? Yes, we are. Great. I like that. We're like a Trojan horse show. Um, while I was cooking, I just carried on listening to it. And then this, the middle segment of the show was so beautiful. And it's about a man called Jim Nicholson, who was the obituary writer for the Philadelphia Daily News, who died last month. And they almost do their own kind of eulogy to him. And they have an archive interview between him and Terry Gross that they play. And the reason he's so unique is when he joined the Philadelphia Daily News, he said he only wanted to write obituaries about non-famous people. Philadelphia had this big kind of blue-collar contingent. And he said he wanted to write with the same reverence and detail and colour 
about local characters in the way that you would write about huge political or celebrity figures. So he would write these, like, really vivid, almost novelistic obituaries about, like, a local postman or something like that. And it's the most beautiful interview listening to him talk because he talks about how those are the souls and those are the characters that are the kind of fabric of society... So I'd love to insert a clip here of him talking So I just found it such an inspirational and um, enlightened way to look at the world. I've been able to write obits on virtually everybody who calls, and uh, uh, it's sufficient. And I get calls from, say, a 14-year-old girl from the ghetto in North Philadelphia who doesn't go through any bureaucracy. She just dials my number and says, I want to talk about my grandmom. And presto, the next day, this girl's grandmom has a... 18-inch obit with picture. Now, where else can this happen? It can't happen anywhere. Have you ever had to say to anybody, I'm sorry, but your mother or your grandmother isn't interesting enough or important enough to get into the paper? Never, never. Nonsense. There is no uninteresting obits. Only uninteresting questions asked by a reporter. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Support for the Hilo comes from Pandora UK. That's right, we're working with my jewelry namesake and their brilliant new charitable partnership. From the 15th of February to the 31st of March, Pandora UK will be selling a sterling silver International Women's Day charm, where 20% of every sale will go to Overcome. Founded in 1996, Overcome is the UK's leading ovarian cancer support charity, providing help to 18,000 people who've been affected by the disease every single year. March is Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month and the 8th of March is International Women's Day and the partnership will be running throughout both. Ovarian cancer is the most common cause of gynaecological cancer deaths in the UK with around 4,200 women losing their life to the disease every year. Around 7,400 cases of ovarian cancer are diagnosed per annum and the disease has a very low survival rate. Screening tests for this type of cancer still don't exist, so raising awareness of the common symptoms is vital in order to prevent late diagnosis of the disease. We couldn't be happier to be teaming up with Pandora UK, the jewellery brand, founded in Copenhagen, Denmark in 1982, which makes it even older than Pandora the person. Hardy ha ha. Head to your local store or visit pandora.net to learn more about the partnership. Thank you very much to Pandora UK. You'll never get bored of that, will you? Nope. now time for an author special and we're so excited about our guest today. Fatima Bhutto is a journalist and author from Pakistan, the daughter of exiled politician Mataza Bhutto and the niece and granddaughter of two former prime ministers of Pakistan. She grew up enmeshed in politics and is a critic of her aunt Benazir Bhutto, who she holds accountable for her father's murder. 
A regular contributor to the New York Times and The Guardian and the author of five books, including The Shadow of the Crescent Moon, her fourth book long-listed for the Bailey's Women's Prize for Fiction, Fatima's latest novel, The Runaways, came out last week. It is a humane, empathetic and thoughtful work of fiction about radicalism and Muslim identity. Fatima, to say that the publication of this novel is prescient would be an underestimation. Could you give our listeners a synopsis of The Runaways and what you want readers to take away and to learn from the book? Well, The Runaways is a book about what the West doesn't understand about radicalism and more specifically what it doesn't understand about the radicalized. So it's a novel about young people who have run away from their homes in Pakistan and in Britain to go and join an extremist movement in Iraq. Um, and what I would like people to take from the novel is a lot of the stuff we're hearing about in the news today, in a sense, um, namely that radicalism isn't really about religion. Mm. It's about pain. Mm. It's about isolation. Um, it's about humiliation. And if we don't understand those things, if we don't start having a more um, expansive and I think a compassionate view, um, then I worry for the future. I worry what will happen next. The three characters you follow all have their different reasons that make them prime for radicalization. For example, I learned a lot about the pressure of proving masculinity yes. while reading your book for young men who join ISIS. But the conjoining one, as you have touched on, is that they all were utterly alone or disconnected. How did you go about drawing those three mm -hmm. characters and what did you want each of their stories to represent? Well, I think modern life is lonely and it is painful and it, you don't have to be from a certain background or in a certain political context to have felt that loneliness or that isolation. But at the same time, I think anyone who is, well, not white, anyone who is brown or from the non-white world, who has been through an airport in the last 20 years has felt humiliated and has felt talked down to and has felt, if not excluded, then cast out um, to be even more direct about it. And I wanted to explore what that means to a young generation of people who have grown up in the shadow of war and of violence um, and who don't feel they belong and they don't belong in their countries. Why? Because they look different, because they sound different, because they have a different context. Um, and how much pain you would have to be in to go to war against the world. And each of the characters, as you've said, has different motivations. And the three characters come from very different backgrounds. Um, one of them comes from a very privileged background, for example, and one comes from a very impoverished background. And I thought that was really interesting because a lot of the dialogue in the UK, certainly, is that they come from, you know, very poor, not very educated immigrant backgrounds. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they've never really had much to make them pos feel positive about the world and their life, whereas... Um, one of the characters has an incredibly rich life to mm -hmm. the outside mm -hmm. world, mm -hmm. but still felt lonely and lost and had a specific reason for, yeah. for joining the Islamic State, not the same reason as all the others. But still, you show that anyone yeah. is kind of ripe for... 
can't think of quite the right word there, but it's vulnerable. Yeah, Yeah. it's vulnerable. I think that's true. I think that there's an industry, certainly in the West, that has presented a really suffocating and singular narrative of radicalism. That's singular. And they've just said, oh, radicalism is about this group of people. They're all Muslims and they all come from this part of the world. And that's it. We don't have to talk about it further. But of course, it's it's not true. I mean, nothing in the world is caused by one reason. Uh, Everything is more complex and granular than that. But I think the the danger of radicalism is that actually it has nothing to do with religion. It has to do with these feelings of of feeling like you don't belong, of wanting a place where you have power, of wanting to be respected. And and those can they can they can become weaponized so easily in today's world. Um, we've seen that with politics. I mean, it, you know, even outside of the case of radicalism, how easily you can weaponize someone's desire for a better life. Um and also, I think it can be manipulated, can't it? It can be for a group of young people. I mean, I don't know if you saw um, the interview of this young woman, um, the American woman, Huda uh, Muthanna, who had been radicalized in America, born and brought up in America, and then had run off to join ISIS. And she said something incredible. She said that she had such a strict upbringing and her parents didn't let her, you know, do the things other girls did. And she ran away to be free. Mm. You know, and that's so counterintuitive for us to think, why would you the go? The idea that ISIS would offer a freedom. Why would you? But it does, I think, for, you know, for, for women who are um, in the same way as young men are, who are trapped between belonging and not belonging. Any place that says to them, oh, you know what? Here, actually, you'll be able to use your power to its fullest extent. Or here, your life has meaning. For a vulnerable generation, I think that's, that's very alluring. And also, you know, beyond background or upbringing or circumstance, the disposition of a teenager is often to feel incredibly lost, particularly yeah. when it, and purposeless, you know, yeah. and unwanted, um, yeah. particularly when it comes to a sense of identity. And I think social media has been so dangerous in this regard, you mm. know, because social media is this kind of bizarre world um, where you have to be better and more popular and uh, cooler than you are in real life, you know. And for young people who are lonely, who don't have friends, who don't have a place in the world where they feel they fit in, now they've got to not fit in in two different places. You know, millennials and the internet um, have been a really strange cocktail because they've changed even radicalism, for example. So before ISIS, if you looked at Al-Qaeda or things like that, they valued secrecy. You kind of needed secrecy in order to operate. But not ISIS, because ISIS is a thoroughly modern Yeah, I mean, you have phenomenon. one character who is obsessively tweeting. That's it, yeah, yeah. exactly. You know, and, and there's no... And it was interesting reading that, because there's no, sh- you know, there's no shame, there's, there's pride, so there's no sense of wanting to hide... Oh, yeah, it's the um, same thing. His, ...his mission. It's the same thing. They want the same thing millennials want anywhere else, which is to go viral... To get followers. Validation. To count, yeah, to count likes as validation and to be retweeted and reposted and watched everywhere. Um, That's incredibly scary to me. I mean, I'm a sort of cusp millennial, (laughs) but I've always thought it was scary. And now to see how it's used, you know, with fake news, with even things like Brexit, you know, how information is manipulated. It's a really powerful and dangerous force, I think. It's like Donald Trump tweeting that ISIS had been 100% defeated. And then lots of other journalists retweeting it saying they have not been 100%. Like the danger of 
the president of the USA saying that a terrorist group have been defeated when they haven't. But, yeah. you know, you see that on social media and you would think... Yeah, and in fact, the they never learn, do they? Because you remember George W. Bush stood on that uh, that ship and said, mission accomplished, mm-hmm. <laughs> much before yeah. anything had actually been accomplished when something dangerous and terrifying was only just beginning. As Pandora mentioned, this book could not be more timely, particularly here in Britain at the moment, in the wake of our Home Secretary stating that Shamima Begum will be stripped of her British citizenship. You tweeted, Begum's handling by the media and the state illuminates what many of us in the global south have long known. Brown voices have no space for error, only enough cruel space to beg for but not receive what is so easily handed to white offenders, forgiveness, redemption and belonging. Mm-hmm. What is the greatest misunderstanding by the West about how teenagers become radicalised, do you think? I think any time you don't give your people a vision for their future and any time you are not actively including them in the construction of that future, they will look for a vision somewhere else. That's really interesting. And, and they will be vulnerable to any vision, however poorly constructed it is, that includes them. And Shamima Begum is such an important case because she was born in Britain, she grew up in Britain, she was educated in Britain, she was radicalised in Britain. And then for her state to say, well, now you can go back to Bangladesh, which is a country she's never even visited. Bangladesh don't want to take her either. Well, but why should they in a way? Because, you know, her parents were Bangladeshi, but they migrated here for a different life, for a better life. Um, Bangladesh has nothing to do with Mm. the journey of Shamima Begum's trajectory or her life. Her country is responsible for her. And I think Gary Young wrote this really powerful piece in The Guardian and he said citizenship is not about character. Yes. It's about rights. It's about having um, a place in which your grievances are heard, where, where you can be held accountable for your actions, where you can hold others accountable for their actions. So Shamima Begum, I think... One has to ask, again, by the way, according to interviews she gave, she said she became religious just before leaving. So she was not like schooled in a long tradition of Islamic theory and theology. Um, It was a sort of Chinese whispers version of religion. Someone told her something that then appealed to her and she became religious, quote, you know, I mean. Um, So what do you do in that case? I think the failure is, Inclusion. The failure is a, a compassionate way of bringing young people who feel adrift back into the fold in their country, much before they do anything dangerous or violent. Um, and after the fact, to strip her of her citizenship kind of proves the point of what a lot of these young people are saying, is that you don't want us. We don't belong yeah. here. And it's a sort of type of Islamophobia that only fuels the fire. We had a really interesting letter into the podcast, I think the week before last, um, by a young Muslim woman who said she was watching her grandmother become much more fundamental in her religion because of how Britain was reacting yeah. to Shamima and yeah. other cases like that. I mean, in the UK, it's Shamima making all the headlines, but in the USA, as you mentioned, it's the Alabama college student, Hoda Mathana, who wants to come home. Mm-hmm. But as um, Rukmini Kalamachi, who is known for her brilliant podcast, The Caliphate, calls a legal loophole, mm-hmm. she may be denied citizenship. And it's not dissimilar to what um, Sajid Javid has said about how Shamima holds a Bangladeshi passport, so she'll go there and not here. These women pose a political dilemma given that mm-hmm. 200 britons are still unaccounted for yeah. who left to join isis 
Um, it suggests that there are going to be many more people who want to come home. Is this precedent of somehow finding loopholes in which citizenship can be denied sustainable? I don't think so. And I think it's incredibly dangerous. I think it, what it says to a, another, the next generation of disaffected youth that, yeah, you're not safe here. We will never protect you. We will never include you. And the moment you do something wrong, we will, in fact, throw you out. And I think that's a really dangerous message in a multicultural world, mm. but certainly in, you know, Europe, which is multicultural and has people from all over the world settled here. I think that's an incredibly dangerous message to be sending out to a generation of young people. Do you believe in the rehabilitation, then, that they should be you know, reclaimed by their country and undergo. What would what do you think would be yeah. the um, most sensible and kind of least humane. yeah humane, but also least um, kind of triggering yeah. sense of? Well, I think certainly the idea of compassion has to be brought into the equation much before you know, like we said just now, much before a crime has been committed or an error or a border has been crossed. I think one has to really think carefully about the vision one is offering to young people. And it ought to be one that includes everybody, that allows for differences in religion and background and ethnicity. And I think there's also an important question to be raised about these young women like Shamima Begum and Huda. In Shamima Begum's case, how was a 15-year-old allowed to go through an airport? Um, you know, how was she allowed to board a plane without her parents, without an adult? You know, these women left quite easily. Why was nobody looking? Why was nobody on the alert? Why was nobody asking the questions you ought to be asking of a young girl? Where are you going? Yeah, I, my friend uh, messaged me over the weekend because she was talking about the difference between the interview with Shamima's older husband and the interviews that uh -huh. we saw of Shamima here. And seeing how much more collected he was, yeah. you realise how young and vulnerable she is. And what I find disturbing is I think, OK, there's not a conversation at the moment about how do you include people before they explode. Um, and there's not a conversation that says, what's the crime, actually? Is the crime joining ISIS or is it liking ISIS or is it mm -hmm. living with that? We don't know yet what the parameters of the crime are. But what I think is really distressing is that um, when these are brown women, when these are black women, when these are non-white, essentially, women, they are sort of pulled out on this apology tour. But I haven't seen Shamima's husband, you know, paraded in the same mm, way. Yeah. Um, there was that young man, mm. the young British man, Jack. Yeah, um, you he's know, already had a very different A totally response. different reception. You know, he went on TV and said he missed his mum and he missed, you know, food and he sort of smiled and everyone just let it be. Nobody insisted, um, you know, on a on a on a remorse tour or mm. anything like that. Mm. What about with Shamima's husband? He has said that he wants them to be together in the Netherlands. Mm. Um, do you think that he has been de-radicalized? Do you trust his? I don't know. I mean, I don't think we can know. I mean, I don't mm. think we can know until these people have been debriefed, until they have been questioned, until they have spoken. Um, to the correct authorities, we can't possibly know. But we live in this age of trial by media, yeah. Mm. Yeah. you know, and we and it's trial by media for smaller things, frankly. You know, anyone who makes a mistake has to then go online and do this sort of mea culpa, mea culpa. And I think it's crazy that we force people to do this anyways, but especially on topics so serious. Did you um, either of you read Catelyn Moran's column on Shamima? Mm. I found it so interesting. It was it was just on this subject about the trial by media, and she said it was it was basically a decision made 
on an analysis of behaviour mm. and character through a TV interview. Mm. She said she's got two teenage daughters herself and she said we basically have stripped Shamima of her citizenship yeah. for being a bit obtuse and for seeming a bit unrepentant well, or watched... awkward on telly. And she was like, welcome to a teenage yeah, girl. she said if every teenager can be punished for being a bit of a dickhead, then may I offer you up my, my <laughs> own two plus, yeah. plus a lot more. Do you think that... It should be then about surveillance, that it's about them going back into their societies, but they are obviously the problem that we had is that no one was watching well, and I also the first think time. Is, is it surveillance the second time? Well, I don't even think so because, you know, London is one of the most surveyed places in the world. I mean, something like 97% of your day is caught on CCTV camera. And again, I think surveillance doesn't work. None of this stuff works, you know. What works, I think is compassion. I think we have to understand um, the fact that these are people who exist in a world where they don't feel they belong, where they feel their religion is um, a cause for attack, where they've watched these wars over 20 years carried out against countries they know, places they identify with. Um, and they're not given a space. You know, when somebody has a dignified job, when they have um, a home that they want to take care of, when they have a, a, a community of colleagues and peers who value them and respect them, they just don't get up and go off to die. Mm. They don't get up to go and fight wars. Mm. Um, people go to face death when they have nothing to lose, when they feel that even death is better than the life that they have. Do you think Shamima without... and the other Bethnal Green girls, as media calls them, went though thinking they were facing death? Because I feel like when you read about that story, that was a that was a different motivation for say why Jack. Yeah, went. I think in their case, you know, again, it goes back to what Huda, the young American mm. girl, said. So I think that they they wanted a place where they belonged, and they wanted a place where they would be free. It's not the freedom you might consider free, or I might consider mm. free, but they wanted a place where they had some power, and they had some ability to exercise that power, and it wasn't here. And I think the question we have to ask is. Why why do they not have other options here? You know, and just to go back to what you were saying a second ago um, about the mere culpas and about um, this sort of insistence online. If we're talking about mere culpas, then, you know, I think it's amazing we don't remember that Tony Blair, who led this country into a war on patently false intelligence and who eight months before he committed British troops and British men and women to go fight this war famously wrote a memo to George W. Bush which said, I will be with you, whatever. Which is kind of embarrassing. Um, but it's, not, it's far more than embarrassing when you consider that I will be with you, whatever, included mass death. It included trillions and trillions of dollars of weaponry, um, hardware, taxpayers' money. And still today, Tony Blair believes that the world is a better place thanks to his decision to invade Iraq. Where's the outrage brigade there? Where is he, you know, where, where is the sort of mob calling for him to be remorseful? And he's still advising, he's still yeah, earning he's loads still of money, involved. he's still writing Guardian comments. Well, it's pieces. much more yeah. easier to politicise an individual than it is to kind of politicise an entire government or a whole, yeah. you know, so many of us, and Dolly and I included, don't know the day in, day out political decision making. You might know about one thing, but you don't know about the other. Sure. Whereas it's it's kind of easy, isn't it, to see a young girl and yeah. think, well, she went to the bad place and now she's back. 
And as I've mentioned before, I think there is a real legitimised terror about having anyone back in Britain that had anything to do with ISIS because of what it has come to represent. You know, in the 80s, it was like the one word that kind of caused mass fear would be AIDS. You know, Mm -hmm. now the the acronym Mm. that causes mass fear is ISIS. It's for what it represents. But then the other side to that is quite interesting because if you look at, let's say, Sajid Javid's response to her, um, it, you know, it assumes that there is no fear in Bangladesh. It assumes that in Syria, people are not afraid of this phenomena. It assumes that, well, those people can tolerate it, but we certainly can't. Yeah, that's an arrogance. And, and that's, yeah. you know, that's, I think a lot yeah. of that arrogance is why we are where we are today. Yeah. Um, because it's assumed that people uh, in Syria can handle that. Yeah. Well, they can't. Yeah, it's not just, on our watch. It's the sense of supremacy. Their, here. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, a, it's a really offensive mm. um, sense of superiority you know, and it also shows a total uh, divorce from reality because in the case of Syria, I mean, Syria before ISIS uh, was not like this. They yeah. didn't have car bombs every day. You didn't have terror-attaining, you know, camps. You didn't have that stuff. So why should the Syrian people be forced to live with that terror? The Runaways is so vivid and specific in its references and descriptions of the process of being radicalised and training to be an ISIS fighter and, as you touched on, its online community and its propaganda. How did you go about researching that? Yeah, did you speak to anyone who had been almost radicalised mm. or knew someone that had been radicalised? Yeah, how intimate was your research? Well, I mean, on it was two parts, I guess. So on the one part, it was things that I've seen and that I've heard and that I've watched and that I've observed over the years. Um, Because I come from a lot of these places. I mean, I I grew up in Syria. Um, I'm from Pakistan. Um, I'm half Afghan. So, you know, you meet people, you talk to people. And it's not that anyone was radicalized, but I, I heard how hurt people were. And and I myself felt hurt any time I had to pass through an airport and get taken aside to a second room just because of the colour of my passport or um, the country of my provenance. So part of that fed into the story quite naturally. And then on the other hand, I did a kind of deep dive onto the internet. And when I started writing in 2014, all this stuff was still online. So there were Reddit threads and mm-hmm. Tumblr mm-hmm. blogs and... Um, I mean, I think you call it a Tumblr blog. I don't think anyone uses... What do you call it? Tumblr yeah. post? Nobody uses Tumblr anymore, but... <laughs> but it's very teenage, though, as a space. So it's very adolescent Oh, it is, space. okay. Yeah, which is why that rang so true when, when yeah. you referenced Sunny on Tumblr. Yeah, and it was, it was a kind of place where you had a lot of it. So I, at that time, I found things on Twitter. I mean, they got kicked off of Instagram fairly quickly and often enough that you didn't catch too much on Instagram. But there are these sort of websites and blog posts and things like that that I went in and read. And I w- the things I was shocked by were not the things that I thought I would be shocked by. Ooh, interesting. Actually. What were you shocked by that you didn't think would be what you were shocked by? Um, <laughs> well, I think what was really interesting is, you know, is, the, is that wanting to go viral. Is that there was the case of this one young Dutch fighter who had been in the Royal Netherlands Army um, and had left that and gone to Syria. And he was a sort of very media savvy character. And he had Twitter Q&As, you know, and you would imagine it was all like death and destruction and gloom. But he also talked about like what food he missed, you know, and how hard it was to connect on Skype, you know, and like what are the difficult things about getting married, you know. And it was this sort of bizarre conversation because, of course, it included all this terror and brutality 
but it was the same kind of millennial yeah like anxiety ask me anything yeah. Yeah. yeah you know waiting for a taxi send me questions kind of thing on instagram that yeah. you got but with people really fighting the world um that was surprising i was surprised how attached they were to cats i mean cats are big or were big um so they would like put up these pictures of cats and i as a dog person myself found them but but i think it was how how similar actually young people across that divide are mm-hmm. um you know whether you're a radical or you're not a radical whether you're you know somebody out so there's a commonality in, in teenage a teenage experience well i think there's a really odd um hunger for fame and I think I saw that in a lot of the research as well, is that people wanted their faces in the video, you know, they wanted their names known, they wanted to be seen. And I think that's terrifying. And I think it's terrifying wherever it happens. That's really interesting when you say about wanting to be seen, because I think that is something you see with ISIS, is that unlike, you know, wars that have been fought in the past, there would be a kind of devolution of responsibility, yeah. you know, like, oh, that wasn't us, you know, yeah. whether it was like, I don't know, the IRA or something, not taking responsibility, whereas with ISIS or with these young fighters, there was actually, like, an enthusiasm yes. to be like, yes, we did it, and here's the person that... You know, Huda said something really interesting when she was interviewed, the young American girl. Um, she was asked, you know, what would you... What do you say to people? Like, what do you want to say to people in your country? And Huda is different than Shamima Begum because Shamima Begum, as far as we know didn't kill anyone, didn't pick up a gun, wasn't a part of propaganda. Uh, But Huda was. Huda was sort of inciting violence on her social media and calling for violence. And I think she may have been in videos, but I'm not sure. And she said something so interesting. She said, I wish I could take it all off the internet. I wish I could erase it from people's minds. And I think that's, I mean, that's such a general lesson of the age we live in isn't Mm, it that mm. you cannot erase anything there's no second lives uh on the internet and you know that desire for fame and and notoriety and celebrity has now clashed uh Mm. with wanting a second life i don't think you get that you don't get your purpose of being a fresh start you don't get both yeah and and i suppose that's the lasting legacy of going to join isis and then coming back is you can't ever rid yourself well I think you know when you've been when you've been a visible part of a propaganda movement wherever it is you know um, and I think we see it in so many ways you know even for example in the case of Brexit where people now stand up and say oh no we didn't actually mean that well you did you said it and we saw you saying it and you made a video and there was an ad on Facebook and um, so transparency means we know so much more Mm. But also our our sort of amnesic memories and our inability to process anything longer than two minutes or 24 hours long mean that it almost doesn't matter, does it? You can say anything mm. and then unsay it mm. and then re-say it and then keep changing. Well, it's much more compulsive the way in which we relay and digest transmit. news now. Yeah, just the way in, we, in which we transmit generally, mm. aside yeah. from kind of politics. In an interview last year, you said of your childhood, I'm haunted by the violence, writing is a way to exorcise that. Mm-hmm. You say in the same interview, born in Kabul, bearing a Pakistani passport, grew up in Syria, you don't want to be in an airport queue yeah. with me. Could you talk a little bit about your itinerant childhood as mm-hmm. the daughter of a political exile, a woman who is immediately identifiable by her surname, mm-hmm. and how your childhood um, and your teenagehood fueled your work as a writer? Yeah. 
Well, I wasn't born in the country that I'm from, and I initially didn't grow up in the country that I was from. Um, and I think people who who have been displaced or exiled or or forced to sort of leave ideas of home, everyone deals with it differently. Everyone has a sort of different approach then to the idea of home. And for me, it was part of what helped me survive that is that I, I was raised by a single father until the age of seven or so. Um, and my father was quite incredible because he had to be my father and my mother and my playmate, my babysitter and all these things. And he gave me this sense of the world that was so large. So I never felt cut off from anywhere. He would talk to me about Pakistan, even though we were not there. Um, you know, he would read me books from other places, even though I wasn't from there. And he encouraged me to feel at home wherever I was in this way. Um, so long as I could talk to people, so long as I could tell stories and hear stories um, and connect, then I was I was home. And I think that's really how I managed to survive a lot of the displacement of my my early life. And the violence, I mean, when we eventually did go back to Pakistan, my father, who was a politician and a member of parliament, was killed when I was 14 years old. And I was very, very close to my father. And so for me, it was, um, I, I didn't I didn't quite know if it was possible for me to live in a world that no longer included him. Mm-hmm. But again, it was those lessons of love and, and connectivity and, and being able to absorb the beauty around you, as well as insist that we see the sorrow kept me going and and writing was a kind of natural reaction because it was a space where I could have both where I could have fear and hope or you know love and loss and um yeah I guess it's how I I still see the world today is really once I've written it down or you know when I've started to think something through on paper that's always allowed me to go through things that would otherwise seem overwhelming and and too daunting. That's an amazing life skill that he imparted and passed on to you, is that even... Because I think if you think about being exiled, you think about your world shrinking, you know, you're not allowed in this place, and instead he managed to make the world expand for you and for you to feel like you could belong anywhere, and that definitely comes across in your writing. And I think that's a really specific childhood, actually. I don't know a lot of people who would say that about... Then about their childhood, that it yeah. just, the world just, you, yeah, I think that's an incredible thing. And this is all also, I mean, one has to say, obviously pre-internet and pre-information at your fingertips. But it was, you know, 1980s Syria where you didn't, you you know, we got the BBC World Service at night. Yeah. I mean, but there was no like satellite channels or New York Times at breakfast. And and he was, he was really amazing. And I, and I think books were part of that. Who yeah. raised you after your father passed away? Oh, well, my father remarried, um, and and so my brother and I um, were raised by my father's second wife, who was my brother's mother. But I, I, I don't know. I, for me, with with loss, I, I struggled a long time after my father was gone until it occurred to me that as long as I was still there, so was he. And then, and then I felt he was there. So I, you know, I didn't. M- of course, I felt his absence, but I also felt his presence at the same time. That's that, lovely that you found a way to still 
include him yeah. in your life, oh, even I... when he physically was no longer by your side? I think grief is a grief is a strange thing, and and you do have to learn magic yeah. to survive it. You wrote about your childhood in a piece of non-fiction mm. called Songs of Blood and Sword. Mm-hmm. How did that experience differ to writing fiction? That was a really different process because it was just before my father was killed. I mean, just two nights before. I mean, it was my father's birthday, actually. And we were sitting up late at night and talking. And I said to him, God, you've had such a fascinating life. You really should write a book. And he said, no, no, no. When I'm gone, you write it for me. And I was 14 at the time and very precocious. So I was like, let me get my notebook. <laughs> and, and he said, not now when I'm gone. And So it was a promise I owed my father, which made writing Songs of Blood and Sword so heavy um, and so difficult because I wanted to do it right. But also I still existed in a very vulnerable, Mm. violent place. And I wanted to do it with justice. Um, And it felt felt at points very illuminating because I learned so much about my father's life and my family's history. But it was really so hard to do. And, and even harder to be on tour, where you have to talk oh, yeah. about all this sort of trauma all day long. And fiction, fiction is so much harder to do because there's no rules. And you don't know what you're doing until it's done, really. So organizationally, it's much harder. But emotionally, it's so liberating. It's so liberating because it's just for you for a long period. And nobody knows what you're doing nobody can come in and tell you oh no that you know is not how you should do it you should... you're completely free and so i've really enjoyed actually this sort of flip i mean I, I do write non-fiction and i will go back to writing non-fiction but i've really enjoyed fiction actually you have almost two and a half million Twitter followers, which is a huge following. And you tweet about flammable subjects, including mm. Imran Khan, former <laughs> cricketer, now prime minister, of whom you are a vocal critic, mm-hmm. and the tensions between Pakistan and India, most recently writing for the New York Times after 300 militants were killed in northwestern Pakistan by Indian forces that you refused to cheerlead for war. Mm. How does social media impact your voice and your message? And do you ever fear for your safety from it? Well, I think social media is a double-edged sword. Um, And I don't even... I wouldn't even call it a love-hate relationship. I think it's like a sort of discomfort-hate relationship that I have with it. I think it's... I think it is important, social media, when you're able um, to speak for yourself, when it allows you a place where you can answer for yourself if if you need to, um, or where you can add to a conversation. The problem, I guess, is that so many people add to the conversation negatively, <laughs> um, as we've seen over the past few years on social media, where it's become such a sort of hateful, ugly mm. place. For me, I like to think of it as a place where you can lend your voice to others and, and speak up for what you really believe in, in a way that's immediate and, and urgent. Um, I kind of have a rule where I don't look at mentions or notifications. We never read. I mean, I didn't for the longest time. I didn't even know there was a place where you could see. Oh, what bliss! Yeah. We so need to exercise. So, that what about role? if someone you really admire replies to you? So, I, I mean, I don't know if everyone's settings are like this. So, you have. I think my settings now. I can see people I follow responding to me. Yes. Or I can see like if some. If I didn't know you could do that. Yeah. yeah, you can do that. Yeah. Wow. Live in blissful ignorance. Yeah. yeah. So I, I intend to do that <laughs> as long as I can. So I figure if it's someone who wants to get in touch with me and I don't see it 
they'll find another way or, you know, I mean, the world is so small, yeah. really. They'll find your email, they'll, whatever, they'll get in touch. But um, I think, so So I don't look at that stuff, but it, it does give you pause, you know, when you know you're going to be attacked for an opinion, whatever that opinion is. Sometimes you do think, oh, do I want, do I want to say this? Yeah. And I... I Are you sensitive to it or would you say you're someone that can deal with criticism fairly easily? Well, I think I can deal with criticism fairly well. Um, and I think I can differentiate between valid criticism and just like trolling. hate hey, or yeah. trolling. Yeah. So I just don't, I don't look at that stuff. But no, I wouldn't say I fear for my life. I think in Pakistan to be Pakistani, to say certain things, you're always a little wary um, because you have so few protections. Um, against violence I mean you have no recourse to violence you know you you don't live in a system where you can trust the police or the courts to defend you so I think we are naturally always wary and sensitive so no I don't worry about social media in that sense I think that's so interesting what you just said because that just when you were speaking I was just thinking I was like god I mean me even asking that you know we live in a society where like social media can be terrifying to us because it's a given that we have a police force who have a a, you know a moral compass it's not we don't kind of miss i know lots of people do mistrust the police here but you would say that we have a fairly you know good rudimentary police system i think what was when i was looking at your Twitter yesterday, what I did find um, particularly interesting and poignant and made me realise as well why you do have a, a huge following is that you are that intersection between East and West that hmm. I think we so badly need. Um, and it's a similar thing when I'm looking at Rukmini's Twitter is that you you allow people and kind of insight and understanding into how they coalesce and what the learnings can be rather than just having what I think we suffer from so much in Britain of that kind of abstraction Mm -hmm. and of thinking that they're not people like us you know your Mm -hmm. point earlier about well Syria doesn't want this war either you know Syria was I remember my sister saying um because for a lot of people all they knew of Syria was Sure. of the war and my sister was like it was it's a beautiful country i used yeah. to love going on holiday there and it, we just forget we forget that those countries were civilized countries before they were ripped apart by war and that the people living in them are not different mm. to yeah. us they don't have different hopes and dreams and rights in yeah, life no i think for me I, I don't believe that things like principles or values or ideals are separated by borders mm. uh, and maybe that's a function of having lived so many places i mean i studied in new york and London as well. Um, and so, you know, when I hear things like Western values, I never understand what that means. But what does it mean, Western values? Does it mean that if you come from the East, you don't value freedom? Like, is that not an Eastern value? Mm-hmm. You know, or does it mean that um, tolerance is a Western value, but not in the East? I mean, so that to me has always been disturbing. And I think what I try to do, at least with writing or when I speak, is is to cut away those barriers you know and to cut away this idea that there are these two spots in the world that are at constant friction with each other and one is left and one is right and one is east and one is west and one is i don't think those exist at all and i think it's part of that same industry you know that prefers all of us to feel as though we are under attack from some other place you know or as though we are superior in some other way to other people my experience is it just isn't true. People in Pakistan want exactly the same thing people want in Britain. They want to have a safe life. They want to have dignified 
work. Um, they want to be able to see friends, to see loved ones, um, to have exposure to new ideas. There's nothing... And a sense of belonging. And a sense of belonging. You know, they want they want to be able to to live lives that they can be proud of. And I, I don't think that's a, you know, a Western idea. And, and certainly if you look at our history and if you look at the history of the Muslim world, that's been enshrined in so many cases. You know, the Ottoman Empire uh, had no word for minority because Muslims were a minority within that empire. It was a tolerant empire. You know, so I think we have to remember things that happened more than 10 years ago or 20 years ago because the lessons are valuable. Is there any particular person who you hope will read The Runaways and understand this process of radicalisation with a little more thought and empathy? If you could press it into the hands of a, mm. of a person, who would it be? Um... Can we make it compulsory reading the teenage? <laughs> <laughs> I think anyone who's scared of the world. I think I would like this book to be in the hands of anyone who is afraid of the world and terrorized by the world around them because I don't think it's terrifying. Um, and I think there's so much we can alleviate by talking to each other and by having a sort of compassionate understanding of each other's pain and sorrows and anxieties and also joys. So, yeah, I mean, one of my best friends, uh, when I gave her the book, and she's Italian, I said, I've written this book, it's sort of about ISIS, and she was horrified and said to me, I don't want to read anything about those people. And I thought, well, you're the kind of person I want yeah. to read my book then. Yeah. yeah, it's often I find, we've had other authors on before, and I thought the people I want to most read your book are the people that it would be hardest yes. to get to read <laughs> your book, because, of course, it's you have to you know, you have to come to certain material with an open mind. And yes. if your mind is closed to anyone that is other, if yes. you have a very specific idea of what other is. Fatima, thank you so much for coming on to the Hilo. You. you are a vital voice and your book will be hugely influential, we hope, in helping people understand a nuanced subject. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to the Hilo. You can rate, review and subscribe on iTunes. It helps other listeners find us and boosts us in the charts. You can email us at thehiloshow at gmail.com and tweet us at thehiloshow. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.